Welcome to the Emerging Minds podcast. This podcast is part of a series called Listening to the Stories of Healing. Within the series, you will hear stories from community and the very diverse experiences of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and how these narratives have shaped the amazing work that is happening in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities across Australia. Here at Emerging Minds, we like to call it the secret garden, the stories and experiences that non-Aboriginal people don't always get to see or hear. Whilst these stories include sadness and hurts and sometimes can feel uncomfortable to listen to, it is through listening to these narratives that you will get a glimpse of the deep wisdom, knowledge and healing practices of families and communities and understand why our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are part of the oldest continuing culture in the world. Welcome everyone, this is Dana Shen, an Aboriginal cultural consultant working with Emerging Minds. Craig Rigney is a proud Aboriginal man and the CEO and co-founder of Corner Windmill Yunti, also known as KWY. KWY is an Aboriginal not-for-profit organisation based in Adelaide that works closely with the specialist homelessness, domestic violence and child protection services across South Australia. Thanks so much for chatting with me today, Craig. Before we get into the detail of what you do in your work, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and, and what personally drives you? Hi, Dana. Um, a little bit about myself. Well, I'm the CEO of uh, Connor Wimwiyunti, KWI, Aboriginal Corporation. So we're a not-for-profit um, charity organisation. And we came about in 2011 where there was a real need for a safe space for men to talk and also for men to address some of their uh, use of violence against women as well. And um, for me, being able to uh, work with elders uh, back in that time to set up KWI was crucial. I was in Aboriginal health at the time. And we absolutely recognised that there was a need to work with men who use violence against women and um, also to give Aboriginal men a safe space to talk about stuff that was bothering them as well. What drives me to be in this space is what I've seen growing up um, and particularly, I guess, uh, as I got older and realised that sadly there's a lot of violence in homes, all homes, not just Aboriginal homes, but there was a real need for a specialist service for Aboriginal families you know, to support women and children who are experiencing or who have ex- experienced domestic and family violence and also for men who have used violence. And I don't mean Aboriginal men, I mean all men. And, you know, I guess in the conversations today we need to make it really clear that it's not just Aboriginal men that use violence against Aboriginal women, it's all men use violence against women and Aboriginal women and children. My passion is really creating a safe space for families to have those discussions and for a service response where they feel culturally safe to have those discussions and to really be able to reach out and look for some sort of early intervention for themselves and for their family that uh, we know that KWI can provide in a culturally safe manner. Mm, Thanks, Craig. And you've begun to talk a little bit about this already, but I wondered if you could begin to share a little bit more about KWI and tell us more about the family-centred approach that you have to family violence. Sure. As I said, 2011 KWI started. There was only a couple of us at that time. Uh, And over the years, we realised that there was a gap in service delivery. We were working with men who, who were using violence, but some of our Aboriginal families and Aboriginal women 
who wanted to stay in that relationship were trying to access services to get some respite or to have an understanding of support from those services, non-Aboriginal services, but they didn't fit the criteria or those services were unable to provide that. So KWI in 2015 put in our first Aboriginal women's worker and that changed KWI forever. It was the beginning of a journey around providing a holistic response uh, for family violence in the home. So we were able to work with the men who were perpetrating the violence against women and children, but also we were able to work with the women who were experiencing the violence. And then the next step for us was obviously then to work with the whole family. So we wanted to be able to work with the children who were also experiencing uh, the family violence. And that led us down the path where we were able to have a conversation with uh, the Commonwealth around the holistic family response to domestic family sexual violence. I wondered if you could talk more about how um, the people that provide these roles, so the women, the men and children's workers, how do they work together to support families and around families? Sure. I, th- I think that's probably the, the, the fundamental and, and core aspect of our holistic model is in the nature of the, the way the model's designed is each worker will go out to the family at any given time. So we'll have our men's worker work with the men, women's worker work with the women and children's workers work with the children. And what that creates is real-time ability for us to measure risk and safety because after each visit, no matter which individual, which practitioner has gone to see the family, they come back and update the rest of the family, uh, the rest of the team. So we have a multi-D, a multidisciplinary meeting, and update each member that's working within that family. And what that does is it allows us to map the behaviours in the family look for those positive parenting patterns, the safety patterns, and also, of course, looking for risk. So the the fact that the men's work and the women's work and the children's work can have those real-time conversations, we aren't waiting for another service to get back to us around what's happening in the family because we're there or one of our workers is there. So it's real-time. And for us, uh, you know, and the families, it's so beneficial for them that, you know, they're able to have those discussions with our workers in that holistic manner. And of course, what we find is that we start to begin to have conversations, not just around the family violence, but then the other complexities that are sitting in the family unit as well, uh, which we can then later on refer into other KWI programs. So we're we're building an organisation that has the ability to provide across many levels, not just for the family, but individuals in the family, around that holistic, culturally safe wraparound service for them. And I think what I find so, I think, wonderful about this this way of working is that you really are working with the organic nature of family yes. and all the dynamics in it, as opposed to separating humans apart yes. from their day-to-day lives. So well, I think that's so special. You have to, otherwise you're not going to get anywhere. Uh, and I think that's a crucial part of it. And, you know, what you've said there about being organic, it is organic and fluid because anything can happen at any time. So, you know, for our workforce to be able to assist families where the families need assistance we're not there to push families forward we're not there to pull them along with us we're there to walk alongside the families and that is really crucial so for us it's about being able to work with a family but at their pace and finding out what the needs of the family are not the needs of our us or the needs of the funding body but the outcomes that the family wants now we know that if the partner child protection are involved or if we know that the police are involved that's okay the family knows that as well so we know where those statutory agencies want the family to be but what we want to be able to do is create a space for the family to make that journey on their own um, you know that family-led decision making so they can take some ownership of that and more importantly see that 
being Aboriginal isn't a risk factor, that our culture is a strength. And we're forever bringing that back to the family and say, look what you've done so far, look what you've been able to do. Yeah, we've still got a way to go. But being strength-based, you know, is so crucial. And a lot of people throw around the word strength-based, whether they actually know how to use it or whether they know how to talk about it or explain that to a family and what that looks like, I think can be missing sometimes. I'd like to come back to that, Craig, but I, I also, as you were talking about culture as strength, another key and similar principle for us is self-determination. And so I'm really interested in your views on what self-determination means within this space of work when we're trying to create that for our people. That's big. Look, I think there's so many layers to self-determination that we could talk about, whether it's about an individual, a family or a community, or an organisation or a community of practice. Many organisations are working together for self-determination. And I think from an organisational point of view, you know, colonisation has had its negative effects on uh, all Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people and our allies as well who are on this journey with us. But I think from an organisational point of view, what that means is actually allowing Aboriginal community-controlled organisations to, to do the work. We know that Aboriginal business and working with Aboriginal families, we get better outcomes if the ACOs can work with those uh, Aboriginal communities. So for me, from an organisational point of view, I would love to see that self-determination and us being allowed to do the work in our communities the way that we want to do it. Because funding bodies sometimes have, uh, you know, they've always got a criteria in KPIs. That's fine. But perhaps let us do the work that we do that we know works best. Now, people throw around co-design and what that means. And sometimes people can say, oh, we want you to work with the community to co-design a model to get the best outcomes that the family needs. Yep, we can do that. But we are still held within a a constraint of what that model looks like. So what is true co-design at the end of the day? And for me, I think self-determination and how we can work with other organisations and community around modelling and co-design can be built in there. So all of a sudden, you know, my brain's racing not just around an organisation but a model, but, you know, how we engage with Aboriginal families and communities and where's the self-determination in the Aboriginal community and the Aboriginal families and what does that mean? Um, because for far too long, what the minute we start talking about self-determination, we are stereotyped, we are pigeonholed and we are put in the corner as angry Aboriginal people, you know, angry blacks because we want to have a voice. And sadly, we know due to oppression, what that means is any, any minority group that's uh, oppressed seeks a voice. And we hit this invisible ceiling because we don't have enough leaders from our own kind to give us a pathway for that voice to be heard. So we hit this invisible ceiling, we turn on ourselves sometimes, or, or the frustrations, they just smoulder in the background. And that affects not only those individuals but communities because all of a sudden our social and emotional well-being takes a hit. How often do we say, oh, we're talking about the same things that our aunties and uncles and elders and ancestors have been talking about for decades? There's a creation of intergenerational trauma. Why are we sitting here right now having these discussions? Because I can feel, you know, that my spirit aches for self-determination and I've got to be a voice for an organisation but also for our families and talking to a government uh, or funding bodies that don't necessarily understand what that means. So, you know, we're hitting this ceiling all the time and swirling around and 
it's really hard to fight your way out of that because you get tired, as, as we all do. You've started on this direction, but I wondered if you could speak a bit more about how services and practitioners can work with Aboriginal men who use violence. Given everything that you have just said and all the complexities, what is it that practitioners should be thinking about? I think the first thing is you absolutely have to have a skilled workforce because doing that work, uh, it's dangerous. And I mean, it's dangerous in the way that if you don't understand or have an understanding around the psyche of why men use violence against women and children, you can inadvertently increase the risk to women and children. So you've got to be able to have those conversations where you hold the men accountable first and foremost. Uh, Safety is a factor. But also being able to have the, the voice of the women and children in the work that you do. Now, I don't necessarily mean having women and children sitting in the men's group or behaviour change group, but their voice has to be embedded in the structure of the conversations because without that, I don't believe that we're going to make change. So I think holding the men accountable, a skilled workforce, but when we're talking about working with men through an Aboriginal context, whether they're non-Aboriginal men with an Aboriginal partner or Aboriginal men um, themselves, we still want to embed a cultural thread to that. Because what we've heard in a lot of young Aboriginal men is a real, uh, the misbelief that violence is in our culture. Now, if we were acting in such a way and using violence against women for the last 65 to 100,000 years, I don't think we would have survived that long. So for me, there's, there's this real dilution of Aboriginal culture. And, and I think that's because when we lose our connectivity to culture, we fill that void with something else. And sadly for us, we see uh, white Western, predominantly American Western, and we only have to look at the sexualisation of of women in in pop music and what that does to the psyche and the accessibility through, you know, internet around, you know, pornographic sites and how that's altering the perception of what's normal and what's not. So taking all that into account, I think that cultural connection has to be there and Sadly, with every Aboriginal person that we've worked with, intergenerational trauma is the number one factor in there. So they've used violence because they haven't had an understanding that, one, it's, it's, it's not OK, uh, and two, a real lack of strategies and mechanisms to put in place before an act of violence. And, you know, without saying that that's OK or giving these guys an excuse because it's not, it's giving them an insight to who they are and why they act and react in certain manners. And... Nearly every guy that we've worked with has said, well, this is the first time anyone's asked me who I am, where do I come from, what's going on for me. So the difference with our programs is, yes, we're talking about the act of violence and making sure that they understand why that is and shouldn't be happening, but we're unpacking all their historical trauma. So we're giving them an insight to who they are and some strategies and mechanisms and coping mechanisms. And we've seen some fantastic changes in some of these men who've just put their hand up and gone, "Okay, you're right. I'm dealing with a lot of stuff that I've never unpacked before. So my frustration is to lash out at someone that loves me, you know, or someone that's there in front of me. You began to touch on this when you were talking a bit about young Aboriginal men. But I wondered, you know, what can practitioners do to promote respectful relationships among young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in their work? I think it's that part around your own values and beliefs and exploring what people see as normal, you know, and the normalisation of violence you know, across the globe today, and I think that's got a massive impact. You know, our tolerance has just dropped away. You now, what we're seeing is normal acts of this and normal acts of that. 
uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, we wouldn't have put up with that. So I think there really needs to be conversations at an early point. The earlier we can have conversations around what a safe and respectful relationship looks like with both uh, males and females, better. I think we can start embedding some of our cultural strengths uh, and our cultural knowledge. I think practitioners just need to have an understanding of who we are as, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, our journey, and again, not to assume that you know who we are and what our journey is meant for each and every one of us, because each journey is different. You're not assuming what that person's going to say next, to sit and listen, and to be mindful of who you are in their space, that there's a certain amount of power that comes with the work. You know, our families are, and they've told us this, that they are scared. They feel that there's a power imbalance when a worker comes to talk to them because the worker's judging. So how do we, from a practitioner point of view, sit with our families and make them feel comfortable around who we are? Because I think that human connection is also very, very important because for far too long people just sit and judge and they can get it wrong. And of course, and that's going to have dire consequences for our families and for our children. Earlier you spoke a bit about um, the model and in particular how you work with all people within the family, including children. And I wondered, what are some of the strategies and approaches that KWI takes in promoting children's social and emotional well-being in this work? For far too long we have overlooked the children's voice in this work and we see, you know, children acting out, we know what can happen. When children are exposed to traumatic and stressful situations in an ongoing period. So, I think what we try to do is again, working in that holistic manner with the family, is creating a safe space for the children to have a conversation and for their voice to be heard. Now, again, you need a very well trained practitioner to be able to do that. And not just to work with our Aboriginal children, but any children. So, you know, as an organisation, We aim to give our staff the best training that we can to arm themselves with knowledge uh, to share, to get those children and parents to a safe space where we can sit and listen to the children, to to listen to what they've got to say and not to underestimate them. And I think that's what a lot of practitioners do. They underestimate how much a child knows, how much a child hears, and that children have a right to have a voice and in particular, be involved in some of those family decisions. And I think we often overlook that. And I think that we often think that, well, that child's seven years old. I'm their parent. I'll tell them what to do. It's not the child's fault if they're witnessing domestic violence in the home. And, you know, what we don't know is just how much trauma is soaking into their spirit, into their soul and into their DNA until it's too late. And then we see the children acting out. We see the children swearing. We see the children not going to school. We see the children closing themselves off and withdrawing, and we know that that's very dangerous. So to give the child a space where they can express how they are and how they're feeling and, and what they would love to see, um, I think it's really crucial to, for us to be able to do that. I also wondered, how do you think practitioners could connect parents with their children's experiences more in family and domestic violence? So... I think, and when I talk about this in the model that we use, we're working with the children, working with mum, we're working with dad, 
or, or the male and the female in the family where the family violence is happening, you've got to get the family, the entire family, to a safe space before you can really bring them together and talk about this. And that's got to be led by the individuals in there, and in particular by the adults, because we want to make sure that the adults in the family unit are at a space and at a time where they're both feeling okay about having that conversation and that they are past blaming each other for that conversation. So we need them to be sitting in a space where they're safe with each other and they're safe, feeling safe about for that conversation to take place. Because we're about to bring in a child into this. Keep emphasising this, the, how skilled your workforce is to be able to do that. If you get that timing wrong, you're going to increase risk. You're going to put the children at risk. You're going to put one of those parents or you know, one of those adults in that family home at risk as well. So being able to tie that together at the right time is crucial. And the way that we're able to do that is we use a lot of mapping tools where we're gauging what's happening uh, in the family unit. So we're educating the parents through this process as well that it's okay to to have arguments and debates, um, but it's when we don't want them to escalate too far outside those realms of safety that are crucial. Thanks, Craig. Now, we know that... There are many occasions when partners end up wanting to stay together, even with with domestic and family violence in their history or or happening. How can practitioners strengthen the positive relationships within the family if parents choose to stay together? I think, firstly, it's the choice of those parents to stay together. And I think practitioners have got to understand that. And of course, Everything that we do is around uh, the safety of women and children, you know, and that's always got to be at the heart of decision-making and the heart of what we want to do. But if a woman says, I want to stay in this relationship, then it's up to us to work with her and her partner to make sure that that is a safe space for those adults to sit in. And, again, it comes back to conversations. It comes back to ensuring that... The perpetrator, and we will use gendered violence, so the male is a perpetrator, that he's got access to support, he's got access to understand why he's using violence. So it may be a perpetrator program, it may be online counselling, it may be a one-on-one counselling service, that he understands where he is and why he's doing what he's doing and that we're able to work holistically with the woman and the children at the same time. Now, that can be difficult because some systems that are in place are put in place to drive those adults apart. And what I mean by that is, say uh, an Aboriginal woman has experienced violence and wants to get out. So she goes to an accommodation service or she'll, she'll go to a DV gateway and then she's in that system. If she wants to get back out of that system and to reconnect with you know, the, the, the man who's used violence against her, that can be difficult for her. Now, that means that some of her supports there through other organisations, through other programs, may cease. So what we want to understand is that if there's a choice where the, the, the woman and, and the man want to stay together, and it is her choice, we, we've got to respect that. So we then start looking at you know, safety planning. Uh, we start looking at the safety context you know, um, in the family home. What does that look like? Environmental. And the practitioners will start to, again, use some of their tools to map out what's going on in the home and to continue to be in there um, as much as the family allows us to be in there. So for us, it's about being able to listen to the family, being able to listen to the two adults uh, in that family unit and working with them around what they want and 
you know, nine out of ten times, it's we want the violence to stop. I need the violence to stop in my home. I love him. So what can we do to work with him to get where he needs to be? So then we've got to start unpacking what's going on for that individual and why they're using violence. Not just the fact that violence shouldn't happen, but what's going on for him. Why is he using violence? And I guess that's, that's the big question. We know violence shouldn't happen in a perfect world. We wouldn't see any violence against women and children. Violence is inexcusable. But we still need to know why he's using violence. Because if we can understand why he uses violence, then we can educate that person, give them the mechanisms, the strategies to start self-coping, to start putting in those roadblocks themselves to go, oh, okay, take a breath, calm down, walk outside, go for a walk around the block, come back, have the discussion. Uh, rather than just arcing up and, you know, letting loose like they might have in, in the past. Mm. You've spoken about so many different complex layers and issues about the system, the organisation, our responsibilities, our culture, our strengths, you know, racism, intergenerational um, trauma that's happened in our lives. I wondered if, if there were three key messages that you could give practitioners about what they should be thinking about when they're working with our families in family and domestic violence situations, what would those three key messages be? Um, I think firstly is reflect on who you are and do your values and beliefs fit with the work that you're doing? Because that will then roll into my second message around you cannot bring your own values and beliefs to the work that we're doing and impose them on other people. Um, and it's really hard not to do that as people, as human beings, because we all have a moral compass that we are brought up on. So I, th- I think those two most definitely. But take your time. Active listening is crucial to the work that we do. And, you know, I can hear practitioners going, oh, but my boss says I've got 45 minutes. I've got to be in and out. You know, we've, we've got this rotating door system that has been set up by funding bodies that... We can't spend the time we need to spend with them. We need to get KPIs on board. So acknowledge that. Take it back to whoever you work for. Yarn up, talk up, and really advocate for a system that isn't gender biased, that isn't racist, and a system that allows for self-determination to be the foundations of working with Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. Thank you so much, Craig, for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us in our podcast series, Listening to Stories of Healing. Visit our website at www.emergingminds.com.au to access a range of resources to assist your practice. Brought to you by the National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health, led by Emerging Minds, The National Workforce Centre for Child Mental Health is funded by the Australian Government Department of Health under the National Support for Child and Youth Mental Health Programme.